Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamagine 8 Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call. In all time zones in between and around the world, it is Wednesday, June the 5th. Coming up uh, in just a few minutes, we have R.E. Nicholson on Twitter, otherwise known as Ruth Nicholson, coming to you um, live in in an interview about some really good governance and and some other things. Uh, I look forward to getting with her and talking to her about some some of her insight and feedback into governance and operations, et cetera, in, in the club game and, uh, you know, just in organizational um, aspects. It, it, I think it's going to be a good chat. So um, if you were under a rock in the last 24 hours, then you missed one of the, one of the, the, the biggest days for, for a U-20 uh, team in in the World Cup U twenty World Cup cycle ever for the U S and that was um, the U S beating France in the U twenty World Cup uh, the the very first knockout round because the U S finished second in their group they had to face up against France and um, we talked about it on the show yesterday it was going to be a tough tough climb one of the things that we we were looking at was you know how would they try to play would they try to stay true to themselves would they um, be able to clean up enough of their play would they would they abandon what they're trying to do uh tactically uh, etc watching the game yesterday um what we saw was courage from that u20 squad and from tab and his staff they 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 said look we want to play a certain way we what we we are going to define for us is the right way and we're going to stay true to that and um we're gonna you know we're going to try to be patient we're going to try to keep our composure we're going to try to stay calm in the moment and um you know they were they they went up one one uh one nil and you know france equalized and when france equalized it's kind of like mm, that might have been the chance, you know. Just kind of watching the flow of the game, um, number ten for France was was just unbelievable, and I, I just kept waiting on him to to break break us down again. Um, this was really good on the ball, and he eventually did from the wing and and off of a shot that um, uh, went off the post rebound france goes up 2-1 and i'm sitting there going man that uh, that might have been it and um the u.s though they 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 didn't panic they didn't start to just lump the ball down the field um they didn't look like what our senior national team has looked like for so long in that environment in that moment which was encouraging that this group of players was they were not freaking out on the field and certainly their coach tab ramos was not freaking out on the sideline either they were staying staying calm they were staying true to what they wanted to try to do how they wanted to try to play and they just they kept going and 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 that is also a, a sign a measure of composure and maturity um that quite frankly we just haven't seen a lot of uh on the men's side of the ledger especially 
And uh, and so to see that play out was really nice. And uh, and they they are able to to work um, a, a an equalizer and then follow it up less than ten minutes later with the game winner, the match winner. And um, from there, you know, you you get up three to two. Now, what do you look like? And we talked about this on Monday when when Liverpool got the lead at the beginning of the Champions League final. For the rest of that first half, especially, it it definitely looked like both outside backs, Trent Alexander Arnold, as well as Andy Robertson, for Liverpool were were a little nervy. Um, I didn't see a lot of that when the u.s went up yesterday everybody seemed to remain pretty calm they were you know working they were 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 trying to follow a game plan make sure that they executed that game plan were there some moments um you know where where i wouldn't call it panic defending but you know urgent defending in and around the box yeah but i mean look that's part of it i mean you're 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 trying to you're trying to see out a game, but it, it didn't seem like the team overall had you know a level of panic in the way that they approached the end of that game when they were down two one, when they were even two two, or when they went up three two. So um, that is progress in and of itself, um, and 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 I was encouraged by that, and you know. You want the results, no matter what, for sure. Um, but it was encouraging to see this team get a result without throwing out the game plan, without throwing out composure, without it becoming just a freakout fest. We're going to stay calm. We're going to stay true. We're going to follow the plan. Let's work this thing out. Another thing I saw uh, was was Tab Ramos, and I, I don't think the guy's gotten enough credit for his work in 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 the youth national team space. Uh, he's been the only consistent figure in the youth national team space over the last several years. A lot have come and gone, and he's still there. And one of the things that I I saw yesterday was was Tab was very calm on the sideline. You know, he was coaching, but he was very calm. He was not freaking out, you know, and and he was he was keeping his composure. Even after the win, he wasn't running around freaking out. Um, you know, it's like, hey, let's act like we've been here before. We should expect to win these games. Mentality-wise, I really felt like, um, you know, he was, he was also leading by example in that moment. You know, you win a big game, but let's act like we deserve to, to win a big game. You know, when you when you watch, especially like American sports, whether it's, you know, American football, uh, basketball, not as much really in baseball, but especially in those two sports. And, and if you if you watch any of, of those sports at a college level, you'll see teams that win big games against someone that they don't expect to win and everyone rushes the court or they rush the field and they freak out. And then you see those teams, those college programs that expect to win those games. And rarely do you see their fans run on the field or run on the court because they expect it to win. 
it's not a freak out moment. Um, and, and so yesterday I, I felt like that was a really good teaching moment, modeling moment that tab was, was, was able to do. And I don't know if it was intentional or not, but, uh, for those players, he, w- he wasn't freaking out, running around like, Oh my gosh, we won everything. Or we won this big match or we won the, like, you know, the sky's the limit, but he was just very calm, very reserved. Like, Hey, let's respect the opponent opponent. Let's act as if we've been here before and you know let let's you know um handle ourselves with composure even post match in the way that we uh carry ourselves so I thought it was an outstanding day it was an outstanding um you know fight the spirit there to fight uh for that win but fight for the win and the way that they did was the thing that was encouraging uh, I I definitely appreciated that from Tab, his staff, and those and those players uh, as well. And um, you know that one of the things I think that we've got to look at is how how does that begin to enter into our our senior teams and um, and next year with our Olympic team, can we get that kind of composure and expectation? and talent and ability uh, both technical and tactical can we get all of that to start to merge and can we start to really develop players in mass uh, for a country this large for a country this this uh, socioeconomically diverse culturally diverse etc we should have a talent pool that is much wider and much deeper than it is. Our system is not reaching and connecting and finding every player uh, possible. So I, you know, I think there are a lot of talented kids out there in the States that are not getting a look, never going to get a look. And that's a shame uh, because our talent pool could be even bigger, even better. uh, And it should be, Uh, we should be a powerhouse on the international stage days like yesterday should become the norm uh and that's the that that's the lesson i think we should all take leaving yesterday's matches we shouldn't get wrapped up in hysteria we should calm down and we should recognize that that moment should become part of our normal experience we should expect that kind of result but also that kind of of performance and if we begin to set our expectations at that level then we have to go and address how do we get there how do we reach a level where on an international stage we're not the underdog against france how do we reach a level where when our 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 women's national team head into a world cup that they are not just favorites but the predominant favorites and that is every cycle. How do we get to that place? How do we reach that level? We are, we are not there. We are nowhere near there. Our current system isn't getting us there. And despite proclamations from U.S. soccer, from Don Garber and Major League Soccer, we're never going to get there under the current system. It's never going to happen, period. That system, that model, that philosophy that has ruled and reigned over U.S. soccer for more than 20 years is predicated on a mentality of 
artificial scarcity. And when you, when you operate off of a philosophy of artificial scarcity, it means that you necessarily lock out others to artificially inflate demand and create artificial levels of investment, or as I like to call it, extortion from cities and ownership groups, because we're going to pit Las Vegas against St. Louis, against Sacramento, and we're only going to pick one. That's a gatekeeper system of artificial scarcity. This country is wealthy enough. It is large enough. It has enough resources to become the greatest soccer country on earth. If we unleash our potential, we can find talent. We can find coaches. We can unleash our potential in a way we've never even imagined. And the only way that's possible is to change the, the mindset at a federation level from artificial scarcity to access and opportunity. And if we do that, if we change that mentality, then results like yesterday can start to become the norm and not a one-off, not, not you know, rare. And I hope we, I hope we get there because those players proved we have some talent those players also showed that if we can produce that group of players we can continue to group, to produce even more players that you know last year when eric winaldo was running for president of u.s soccer he and i had a conversation about christian pulisic and he said to me and and he, and he also said this publicly in some interviews as well but one time we were we were riding in the car to an event and um while we were you know in the car and and having a conversation he brought up this idea of talent in in this country that we have so much talent so much of it that goes unnoticed unseen undiscovered and he said to me i believe right now in america there are a hundred Christian Pulisic's. Not one, but what hundred. But most will never get found. Christian Pulisic is, is heading to Chelsea to play in the Premier League. Now, do we have a hundred? I don't know. But is there a likelihood just based on mathematical statistics that we have more than one Christian Pulisic? Probably so. And what that statement really is identifying is that we are not identifying the talent. We are not finding the talent and we are not rewarding those who discover and develop the talent. And that's what has to change. That is what has to get better. That is what we need in order to get real progress and change in this country. So anyway, big day yesterday. Congratulations to that U-20 team as they move on in the U-20 World Cup. It was a big day. It was exciting. Um, really happy for those guys. Keep fighting. Let's see how far we can go. Um, 
the 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 road ahead is much easier than than the hurdle you just got over but you can't slip you've got to stay focused stay locked in and and uh, i'm sure tab and his staff are going to get those guys ready for the next match so world cup 2019 kicks off on friday and um really excited for that as well um ruth nicholson is coming up just after this break and uh, stay tuned for that our sponsor this half hour is duck kick brand if you haven't checked out duck kick brand check them out at duckkickbrand.com and if you place an order use the promo code dw show again that promo code is dw show you will get 10 percent off your order and support this show at the same time so Thanks, uh, thanks for doing that, and thanks for supporting Duck Kick Brand. They've got really cool products. If you're a soccer coach, a soccer player, etc., you should check them out. More info at DuckKickBrand.com. We will be right back after this. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in this Wednesday morning. We are really pleased to be joined by Ruth Nicholson, who is the co-creator of the 2019 Think Tank to Improve Youth Sports and the founder of Go. Ruth, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on this morning. Oh, good to be with you. So tell us a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated uh, and curious at the same time about your work. Uh, first, with the 2019 International Think Tank to Improve Youth Sports, that is one giant enchilada of a mess that you have chosen to uh, to try to work on. So give us a little bit of information about that. So um, it actually was an online event in late, mid to late uh, March 2019. Um, and in 2018, late, late 2018, um, Reed Maltby and I, uh, Reed Maltby with uh, Raising Excellence, um, he and I were talking about, uh, we actually were complaining about people complaining about youth sports. Um, and, and our complaint, if you will, was we're really good at complaining and we are less adept at coming up with solutions 
and things people can do in their local communities that actually will make the situation better. Like moving off the dime of complaining to, okay, so what are we going to do about it? And um, we came up with six different pieces of, of youth sports, everything from coaching the sport itself, you know, the technical pieces of it to the, the mental and social pieces, the uh, club and infrastructure organizational pieces. And we, we went nuts. We engaged um, Sam Snow, who's the retired technical director from US Youth Soccer, and Gordon McClellan, who's with working with parents in sport um, in the UK. And we got 10 speakers for each of these six sections. And we said, okay, we want you to ground your presentations in proven practice or scientific research. And we want you to leave with at least two takeaways that they could try at home that would make a difference in their communities and their sport. And by the way, you can't go longer than 30 minutes. And uh, we kicked it off. We ended up with 62 sessions. We actually had a couple of extra sessions. Reed and I did morning and evening keynotes. Um, we're in the process now of converting all of those sessions um, to uh, online on CoachTube. The result was we ended up we thought it would be like a North American thing. Um, and we were pretty excited about that. And then we had Gordon in the UK. So, you know, it might be a little bigger than, than North America. We ended up with people from two dozen sports on five continents. We had uh, a university in South Africa. We had Australian rules, football coaches from Australia. I mean, it, it was, um, so much more engaged than than even we thought it would be. Um, and I did up a, a journal, a reflection journal to help people take notes. And it was built off of uh, the improvisational theater uh, approach of what, so what, now what? You know, what is this thing? What do we know about it? So what being, well, what does it mean? What are the implications? And now what being, well, what am I going to do about it? So it was really focused on, we don't want to complain, we want to do something about it. Um, and we're looking forward to doing it again in 2020. So what drives you to to do this work? I know you have, you know, um, you're the founder of Go, um, it, but where where did this drive to you know to 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 engage in this arena with this topic? Uh, come from? Um, it comes from two places. One is that um, I'm actually a Title IX kid. When I was a little girl, my brother could, my younger brother, who I really love, but my younger brother could play sport and nobody questioned that. And I was told, well, you're a girl, you can't play sports, which didn't set well with me. Um, so there's part of me that's still like, you know, I'm going to show you I can be involved in sport. And the other part has to do with a very personal story about a coach and my youngest son um, and the difference that young coach played in my son's life. 
and a lot of go is playing it forward as a thank you to that coach. So what, what so what, what do, you, do you mind sharing that story about, about your, your, your younger son and what in, inspired you? My younger to, son. Um, yeah. Well, my, my younger, my younger son had um, suffered with depression on and off um, starting when he was in, uh, when he was nine. And um, when his father left, uh, he was 13 and he was, he was seriously depressed. He was writing suicide notes and um, that's a scary thing. You know, if you're a single parent and um, his coach uh, had had some similar experiences with divorce in his family um, and was really there um, in a role that coaches don't necessarily sign up for. I mean, uh, but uh, that coach helped save my son's life, and that's a big deal. At least to me, it is. I would say so. Um, you know, we we, we often kind of conflate you know sports to life or death issues, but I mean, when you're talking about literal life or death, I would say that is a big deal. Um, and and so. In, in your inspiration from that interaction, that influence that that coach had on your son, it inspired you to, to set forth on a, on a path and a journey to launch Go. And what exactly is Go for the audience? What, describe you know, what it is and, and what your mission is with Go. So GO stands, literally stands for governance and operations. That's what the G and the O part stand for. And um, I've coached um, in my younger years and discovered that I'm an okay coach. I am much, much more talented when it comes to helping boards of directors, volunteers, parents, that, that group of people that I, I call them the off-field team. They're all those adults that actually have to play nice together so that our kids actually have fields to play on, shirts that match, uh, referees that show up, you know, all of all of the stuff that's actually not the glamorous part of sport. Um, and so the, the mission actually is if I can help clubs organize and operate efficiently, whether it's with paid staff or volunteer staff, that translates into support for coaches. Um, I work with something, well, I developed something a couple of years ago, and I call it the seven deadly challenges of youth sports organizations. Um, and it's all about, from an operational standpoint, what are the big headaches that clubs face? And GO is all about reducing or getting rid of those headaches so coaches can go do what they do best, which is be in the sport with our kids. Um, so that's it's even though it's focused on governance and operations, ultimately it's about supporting coaches so they they can do what they want to do. Because um, most coaches I know don't really like going to board meetings and really aren't enamored of doing administrative stuff. Certainly not, uh, and and I would say that uh, there are a lot of coaches who who are forced to do so, who are not interested or gifted in that area either, but have to just because of necessity. And so, any work in that area that 
can be done that makes that work either more efficient, more productive, more meaningful, et cetera, I'm sure it helps. What sports in youth sports do you, do you work with or, or have a concentration in, uh, if any at all, uh, in your work? Um, soccer is, is still the largest part. Um, I do some work with hockey. Um, I've done some work with USA football, uh, a little bit with volleyball and basketball. Um, one of the, one of the really amazing things about the think tank is, uh, expanding that network of people in, in multiple sports, uh, done a little bit of work with ice sports, um, skating, uh, figure skating and, and track skating both. So it's, it's expanding a bit, but it's still, it's still heavy, heavy to soccer. Um, and that, that's the sport that I played. That's the sport that my kids played. Um, although my grandson just took up T-ball. Uh, so th- there may be baseball in his future. Well, uh, well, well good luck with that. Um, with, with the t-ball thing my my i used to uh to to run a local baseball league and um by the time my second son got to, to t-ball he played two years and was like dad this is boring i just want to play soccer i said okay bud we're going <laughs> let's go play soccer we're, we're <laughs> well, good my <laughs> my daughter-in-law's family has um she has a couple of uncles who actually played um in the major leagues, major league baseball. So, um, I know there's a passion for that, on um, um, that side of the family. Well, that, that definitely plays into it. Makes sense for sure. So in your work in, whether it's a, with a soccer club, whether it's with, you know, any, any other sport, it, if someone were to bring you in and, you know, say, okay, Hey, we need some help. What are some of the issues, specifically the examples that, that, that you are seeing that you're trying to help them overcome, challenges you're trying to help them solve, et cetera, in order imp- to improve that off-the-field experience of these clubs? Yeah, I would sort of put them in two broad categories. Um, one of the biggest needs, and, and not many clubs do it, is – having an annual board orientation or a periodic strategic planning session so that you're helping the people on your board of directors um, understand their roles and understand how their roles, if they're parents of players in your club, how their roles as a parent are different than their role as a board member and the importance of actually keeping them separate. Um, I've done way too many mediations where a board member uh, has an issue with a coach or a team and then barges in as an unhappy parent, but pulls the power of the board member with them and it creates an absolute disaster. So um, orienting boards, helping them understand, you know, what the legal responsibilities are. When you say yes to being on a board of directors, you're talking about financial responsibility, about, um, managing staff, managing programs. It's, it's, not, it's not a small undertaking. Um, and the other is helping clubs, you know, plan for w- what they want to do and who they want to be, not just sort of bumbling from season to season to season. Um, the other piece has to do with 
setting up volunteer programs that you really get the most out of volunteers. I mean, when I was a kid, it was common for uh, a lot of our moms, you know, stayed home um, and did, you know, much of their work at home. And there was this pool of volunteer labor. I mean, it's almost sort of like leave it to beaver, right? But while we were at school, my mom was working at home, but she also had the opportunity to help at church or with the Girl Scouts or the YMCA or the soccer club or you know whatever that volunteer thing was that was close to her heart. As more of us have two parents who are working outside the home or were single, single parents, that volunteer labor pool has changed and we're now trying to fit all that volunteer stuff you know, between when we get home from work and bedtime, and by the way, we have soccer practice and dinner and bath and homework. And um, so it's become even more important that our volunteer programs make the best use of the folks who are helping us out, that we, you know, we don't have long drawn out meetings that waste folks time, that the roles we ask people to fill are manageable and specific and meaningful um, you know, it, it doesn't do to say, well, would you just show up on Tuesday and work until we're done? You know, it, it needs to be more meaningful. Um, and, and in a pay to play system, you know, you've already got the rub of, if I'm paying for my child to play and you want me to volunteer, that volunteer experience better have some quality to it. What, what have you learned and what, are, what do you try to to impart to these clubs let's say you let's say that you are a pay-to-play youth club and you are trying to recruit volunteers and and build a volunteer program for your club so that you can do more because you know, you, you, you may have the ability to have paid staff and you may have the ability to, you know, pay coaches some part-time, some full-time, et cetera. But to really do everything that needs to get done, you're likely still going to need to lean on, you know, a, an army of volunteers, whether that's tournaments, whether that's special events, it could be board member roles, et cetera. What, what have you learned in your work and, and kind of, tried to help clubs with in terms of recruiting volunteers, keeping volunteers and, and, you know, running a, a quality volunteer program. Um, I think the, you know, in a nutshell, like in a headline, it's go slow to go fast. And what I mean by that is there are, I, I, I talk about the equation, the volunteer equation, three parts planning, one part work, and one part gratitude. And, and it's, it's hard to slow down. I mean, if you talk to directors of coaching and coaches and board members, you know, their to-do list is really, really long. And it's like there aren't enough hours in the day. But the go slow to go fast, if you really sit down and say, what are the jobs specifically that I need volunteers to do and outline what that is. And, and I'm, I'm talking job descriptions, like what is the task? How long is it going to take? What do people need to know to do that job? There's almost always a training component. Even if, you know, even if you're picking up trash at a tournament, you still have to know where the garbage cans are and where the garbage bags are and 
where you're going to dump the garbage bags. I mean, it might not be fancy training, but there's still stuff you got to know, right? So what are the jobs? How long is it going to take? What training is needed? And what are the supplies that people need to do the job? And who's going to provide the supplies? I had had one club that... um, had outlined some some job descriptions for um, folks to help get player cards for the for the kids, and made the assumption. And the player cards had to be laminated. It was a a rule of the league. And when they did the job description, they were silent on who was going to laminate the player cards. Now that that doesn't sound like a big deal, but if you don't have a laminator sitting in your office. It becomes a question, how are you going to do it? Who's going to pay for it? And if I'm, you know, running one or two teams at some point, you know, I'm going to notice that that's, that's money. So doing the work about what are the jobs, describe the jobs. So when I come to you and I say, hey, Daniel, I need help for two hours on Saturday picking up trash at the tournament. Are you in? And you might say, well, you know, you might want to check the schedule to see if your child is playing or not. But I am much more likely to get a yes out of you if I'm specific, two hours on a Saturday picking up trash, than if I say, hey, could you could you come Sunday afternoon? And, and I think we're going to have to pick up the tournament, and it might take a while. And you have no idea how long it's going to be, what you're going to be doing, Um the more specific you are, the more likely people are going to say yes. And if you don't ask, they can't say yes. The other thing is the the literature in volunteer management, and this has been around since the 1970s, is if the job you're asking somebody to do takes more than about 10 hours a week on average, you're setting volunteers up for burnout and turnover. So looking at, at how you structure the jobs, how long are they, how, you know, how involved. So it's okay if you ask somebody, you know, be my uniform coordinator, and it's going to be absolutely nuts for about three weeks. But then, you know, the rest of the year is not quite so, so difficult. But if you ask a board member and you're expecting them to put in 15 hours a week for a two-year term, you're in the danger zone from the get-go. So that three parts planning, which is, you know, it's work and it's not terribly exciting. That makes it easier to recruit and retain volunteers because you've got your act together. You've been really specific about what you need. And then the, the last piece is actually saying thank you. I mean, being really grateful for what people give you in terms of their volunteer time. Um, because some of the jobs you're asking people to do, um, they can be hard. They can be really unglamorous. I mean, picking up trash at a tournament isn't necessarily at the top of everybody's list, but it sure is important. You know, the people who are renting you those fields aren't going to rent them to you if you leave them a mess. Certainly not. And uh, field space is always a, a hot topic in cities around this country, access to fields, et cetera. So not... Uh, you, you never want to burn that bridge um, because without without field space, you're not running a program um, and uh, and someone else is in your place. So 
Um, that that's really really good information and good insight about uh, you know volunteerism and and board uh, responsibilities, board roles, etc. Um, and and so when you're when you're looking at um, the these clubs, so you know uh, a youth pay to play club, and you know you're having conversations with them. When you look at kind of that fifty thousand foot view um you know getting out of the the implementation piece for a second what what is the conversation like that you're trying to have with them about you know their purpose their why um you know the about what they're doing that that kind of guides the how it gets done i think i think clubs Helping clubs have a sense of where they fit in in this, um, what is it that Gordon calls it? It's a game of shoots and ladders. Um, Gordon McClellan over in the UK, it's, it's one of his articles. Um, because the, the landscape is so confusing. I mean, uh, you know, clubs that, that are just recreational, clubs that are based um, in a faith community or an ethnic community, you know, clubs that um, have teams playing in the DA or the ENCL, um, you know, there's um, increasingly more clubs um, in USL that have everything from a recreational to a competitive leading all the way up to both men's and women's professional teams. And so trying to figure out where you fit in as an individual club in your community becomes really important because, you know, not all clubs are going to, are going to feed, you know, a professional team Um, and having a sense of who you are, what are the the types of players that you're there to serve um, and then building out your coaching staff and your curriculum and your approach that matches that. Um, and it, again, it's another go slow to go fast. Uh, and I mean, it's a, it's a confusing place. And you look at a lot of, uh, of metropolitan areas and, and you can find that fit all of those, all of those niches. Um, so I think the other piece, and the other message, which it might be a soapbox by now, um, but I learned it 14 years ago when I started working with Bobby Howe, um, who who has a pedigree as a, a player and a coach and a director of coaching at, at the national, state, and local levels. And he said, the secret of making a club work, and it, and it doesn't matter the competitive level, and it actually doesn't matter the age is a balance and you imagine it's a three-legged stool and there's a player sitting on the stool and you and I both know if you have a three-legged stool and one or more of the legs is too short or too long the player falls off the stool right and the three legs uh, one is really visible and the other two aren't Um, the first leg is all about coaching and players and the game and that's the most visible. That's, that's how we judge clubs. The second leg of the stool 
is governance, is that board of directors or the owner of the club. It's that financial, human resources, legal stuff. Um, and the third leg is, is the operations and administration leg, the getting the fields, the getting the uniforms, getting the referees, you know, handling the money, that day-to-day operational stuff. And the fact is that the go piece, those two legs, exist to support coaches and players. So if you're, if you're working in those two legs, if you can't tie, I mean, make a direct tie between what you're doing as a board member or an administrator to a player, a team, or a coach, you'd better think really hard about why you're spending time and energy on that thing. So you may not be that visible, but those three legs have to be in balance or that player falls off the stool, even though what we mostly see, you know, is the coaching and the game side and trying to help people understand that that balance means that the, the adults who play in those three places have to be a team off the field. Cause if we're snarking at each other, we're not doing our players any good. So one of the one of the things that I have noticed when I have you know talked to clubs, experienced clubs, you know firsthand, uh, etc., is there is a there's a conversation that is had between the club and the community about you know what their intentions are. Uh, there's often you know an experience you hope as a club that that your intentions match the experience that you're trying to give to these families to these players so you may you may give this lofty speech about player development and how you want them to play how you want them to learn to love the game etc and you're hoping that your programming supports that and provides that developmental environment, um, that positive experience, et cetera. And one of the things I've noticed is clubs are, are missing one key piece to this, um, and that is not having their staff on the same page, whether that be, you know, from a curriculum standpoint in terms of what we're going to teach and how we're going to teach it. Um, you know, we, we, we often, are, everyone's familiar in the U S especially with the idea of schooling, you know, and you, you have your subjects, math, science, English, history, etc. but your teachers are operating off of a curriculum and a schedule and, and, and what their program is going to be. And it, you know, it's generally following a path. Obviously you're, you're adapting for your class and, and the, the, the students in your class, et cetera, but you're taking them down kind of an education pathway that is a plan. Um, have you noticed in your conversations and in your work, have you seen a lot of curriculum-based, you know, uh, let's really put in that extra time and have the planning in place so that our coaches are all on the same page, whether they're dealing with younger kids, maybe middle school age kids or high school kids, or have you seen this also to be an area where there is a void in, in terms of 
preparation and planning uh, matching up with you know expectations or proclamations um, you know to to the parents and, and the kids themselves you know I think there are a lot of folks who want to make that a reality to have to have a solid curriculum and to have that um, that stability and that vision and ultimately that success right because if the curriculum is good you're you're assuming that you know then the player development is is quality i actually think there are two things that get in the way well maybe three things that get in the way of achieving that um and in no particular order um one is that um particularly in, in sort of the competitive piece of, of youth sports, there's a whole lot of turnover in both players and in coaches between clubs year to year to year. And if you're trying to develop this, this culture and this curriculum, because, I mean, think about it. If your child starts playing soccer in, you know, first grade and, uh plays all the way through high school that's what 10 years give or take right that's that's a lot of years over which to grow in in ability and understanding of the game what are the odds in this day and age and and i don't have i don't have the data but how many kids do we know even between the two of us that stayed with the same club for all 10 of those years how many coaches do we know that have stayed with a club for 10 years, which is kind of that cycle, if you will. So part of it is we've got turnover. And if you're trying to create consistency, turnover, just like turnover in volunteers is, is a little bit of a, a tough thing to deal with. I think another piece is um, our coaches volunteer, which can have a turnover component. Are they contract employees or are they direct employees, like W-2 employees? Because the, the rules about how tightly you can supervise a contractor versus a direct employee um, also plays into um, sort of the maverick component that can come with coaches. Like, it's, it's my team. I'm going to do what I like with it. I'm, you know... Um, and that tension with no, this is this is a club, and we have a curriculum and a culture, and we want to to sort of you know rally around that and support that. Um, so you have that human resources factor um, about how we hire and supervise coaches. Um, but I actually think the thing that makes it the most difficult is actually the first of my seven deadly challenges for youth sports clubs, which is. Our director of coaching has so much administrative work to do that she or he doesn't have time to work with our coaches and players. That, that the way we define the job of a director of coaching in a club, or maybe we call him a technical director, but the way we put that on the director of coaching has all this other stuff that either is assumed they will do or just sort of lands on them that they're always fighting through the administrative stuff and what gets shortchanged is the curriculum and that going out being with coaches mentoring coaches seeing where 
the needs are. I mean, how many directors of coaching do we know? And they say, well, in order to justify your salary, you also get to coach one or two teams. Well, the minute we ask a director of coaching to coach teams on top of all those other jobs, you've compromised her ability to then spend time with teams that practice at the same time or have games at the same time. So I, I think we've got a system that is organized that makes it really hard for clubs to do what you're asking, even though it's a really good idea. So speaking of coaching, as we come, uh, come to, uh, to, towards the end here of our conversation, um, I wanted to ask you a coaching story of yours uh, concerning pink rain boots. Um, and I'm curious pink to, yeah, I'm curious, <laughs> curious to hear your story here on coaching in pink rain boots. Pink rain boots. This is, this is the pinnacle of my coaching career. And I, I did as a young person, I, I, I coached the high school team when I was in high school because we had trouble getting a high school team after title nine and I coached middle school kids when I was uh, at university. Um, and 20 years after Title IX was passed, I was a mom. And I had kindergarten age kids. And my husband was coaching at the YMCA. So imagine a co-ed kindergarten team at the YMCA. And uh, my husband worked in aerospace. And, and his company said, you've got to go to Brazil for three weeks to work on this airplane. And he had a license and he wrote out lesson plans for me for the three weeks, three weeks he was going to be gone. He says, you've got to coach the team. I said, well, I don't think I can screw up kindergarten. And I had, I had games and I had, and he says, now it's going to be fine. We're in Seattle. We're just North of Seattle, Washington. So the fact that people wear rain boots here is, is not surprising. He says, there's a little girl on the team and her mom really wants her to play. But she's not into it. She shows up for practice in pink rain boots and this big puffy pink jacket, and she is not going to play. She's not going to engage. She doesn't want to be there. I said, okay. So I'm going to be nice to her. I'm going to invite her to participate, but I'm, I won't be brokenhearted if she just doesn't. Three weeks later, he comes back from Brazil, and this little girl is all in. She has cleats and socks and shorts and she's like the first one there and she's playing and having a great time. And my husband said, what did you do? And I said, I don't know. I did what you told me. I stayed to the lesson plan. Everything we did, I invited her to play. I don't know. And her mother says, I can tell you what she did. I can tell you exactly what you did. I'm like, good, because I don't have a clue. Now, mind you, this is 20 years after the passage of Title IX. This is like the late 1990s. She says, my kindergarten daughter did not believe that she could play soccer until she saw another woman play soccer. Wow. Well, that's like winning the World Cup. Like I retired at the top of my game with my pink rain boots. That's a fantastic story, and uh, you know it, it is such a good truth as well. I am I'm a big believer, and and I I'm you know going to assume you are as well. But in, in listening to you share stories and your insight, 
have to believe you are as well uh, of modeling model what you want to see happen leadership through modeling and building that culture you know uh, of doing taking action etc and it is so important to to have uh, you know mentors to have people that inspire you um, that can um, you know kind of get you from where you are to where you want to go or where you want to be and and ultimately that is the role uh, of the coach and um, in this case uh, your story with the pink rain boots is is spot on and and I'm sure that that um, you have uh, beamed with pride each time you tell that story you can hear it coming through uh, the phone as you share that story and you should be proud because you made an impact and changed um, her life. And, and ultimately that's, that's, you know, what a coach should be, you know, in the business of doing, which is improving the lives of those around them. So Ruth, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I, I would like to, to, for the audience to be able to, to, to connect with you or follow your work. Where could they find out more information about what you do and, you know, where you're at on social media so that maybe they could interact with you, et cetera. Okay, my um, the the website is gohelpsports.com, um, and that goes to my company website. I'm actually a professional facilitator and mediator, so there there are pieces of it that are youth sports and pieces of it that are that are some of my other work. Um, gohelpsports.com. Um, I I'm on Twitter um, at r E. Nicholson, uh, N-I-C-H-O-L-S-O-N, spelled like Jack Nicholson, um, except it's R-E in the front. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your insight and, and stories. And uh, there was so much there. I, I, I've made a page of notes uh, listening to you kind of share <laughs> insights. Uh, I'm a, I'm, I'm just, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, organizational and, and operational excellence and, you know, f doing what you do and figuring out ways to do it better, et cetera. And so, um, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing some of that insight and definitely look forward to having you back on again in the near future to talk uh, more about youth sports. Maybe, maybe, maybe we can get into some of the, the worst, bad, ugly things you've ever seen. And maybe we can find a way to, to solve some of those together uh, on a future chat because uh, there's, oh there's plenty to go around. At this hour, I'm going to have to have a second cup of tea to do that. Right. For sure. For sure. Well, look, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, we, we are really uh, glad that you were able to stop by this morning and uh, share your thoughts and insights. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That was Ruth Nicholson. And uh, like I said, if you if you want to learn about her work, find out more about her work, you can do so. Uh, find her on Twitter at R.E. Nicholson and, uh, and go to her website, learn more as well. And great insight there. So thanks uh, for joining the show. We will be right back after this break. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. 
bad water and a lack of toilets. Kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for uh, tuning into the show today. Thanks uh, for uh, Ruth Nicholson coming on the show. It was a great conversation. Look forward to having her back on again in the near future. Tonight, the U.S. Men's National Team have a friendly against Jamaica. I believe that's 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And um, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, you know. There's no way to tell with a friendly coming off the season, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, but, again, big, big win for um, the uh, U-20 team yesterday. It was uh, it was incredible. So, um, I'd like to thank Charity Water for the sponsorship this half hour. Um, Duck Kick Brand also sponsor came on the show this week. And... Um, like to thank Ruth for coming on the show. It was, uh, it was, it was definitely a good chat. And, um, you know, when, when you're looking at governance and you're looking at operations and you're trying to figure out how can we do what we do better, it is, um, it is definitely worth taking, you know, a deep dive into how you do what you do. And, and Ruth has a lot of insight into that. So, um, it was, it was definitely, definitely a good chat with her definitely um enjoyed having her on and um definitely will have her on again in the future thanks for uh, watching the show thanks for tuning in uh, we will be back again tomorrow and uh you know the the world cup the the women's edition of the world cup kicks off friday with france so uh set your clocks set your alarms tune in um i think it's going to be a really good world cup and um look forward to seeing what happens um it's going to be a big challenge for the u.s national team and uh they may possibly be pay, uh, facing off against france we'll see how the group group stages go etc but um it's going to be it's going to be an interesting world cup and i and i think the uh the attention and the eyeballs and the enthusiasm is going to be pretty high. So look forward to that kicking off on Friday. See everyone again tomorrow, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can watch live on DanielWorkman.com. We'll see everybody tomorrow. <laughs>